a lot of my friends who are scientists both in india and america the barriers they face how much more they have to struggle to have their credibility established i don't see these problems going away easily and you know a lot of people getting disheartened and by the time they're in their mid 30s giving up because it's just too difficult and and some of this actually comes down to whether you want children or you don't want children whether you have a supportive spouse and family or not and success often comes down to that rather than what the person is about Welcome to the season 6 of Outliers. I'm your host Pankaj Mishra and I'm really thrilled to be bringing this edition of Outliers in collaboration with the Times of India. Outliers is a series of free-willing conversations with the ones who choose to take the road not taken often. It's about the crazy and the curious, those who dare to stand out and stand alone. Keep listening. I'm really thrilled today to have with me uh, Kriti Karant, who is uh, a scientist, a wildlife conservationist, uh, an amazing storyteller. Because I've only read and heard some some of the uh, stories uh, on YouTube and elsewhere, and and someone who is deeply, deeply passionate, at least from what I pick, about uh the wildlife around us about things that that really matter in in making sure that we have a planet that is uh, sustainable that we all uh, love living in uh often uh, you know underrated welcome uh, kriti to this podcast thank you pankaj very excited to be here let's start from the start <laughs> tell me a bit about yourself uh tell me growing up things that you feel have shaped who you are today uh, give us a sense of where you come from so i grew up in mysore india my parents uh, doctors pratibha and ullas karant are both scientists and i think uh, being an only child i got a lot of attention from them but they were also deeply passionate about their respective uh career so my mom is a speech language pathologist who has then gone on to work with children with autism my father is a very well known uh tiger biologist and conservationist as well and being around them um they give me a lot of freedom a lot of flexibility uh they never pushed me to do anything in particular so i had time to choose uh figure out what i was passionate about but what i got from being around them was that it really mattered that you find something in life that you love to do that's the only way you're going going to be able to do it for the next 30 40 50 years of my of your life and uh it was not about money it was not about fame and success it was really about having impact doing things that are meaningful that change the needle in some small way uh, and all of this i think i very passively absorbed just watching the two of them and i was also very lucky because uh, my grandfather dr shivram karant who was a very well known writer theater personality i mean truly uh, a polymath he i was around him a lot i spent a lot of time with him even though he was you know 77 when i was born he he passed away when i was 18 and he would come to our house in mysore and very often because he would travel all around karnataka giving his talks and all of that 
and he was just truly extraordinary i have never met anybody as incredible as him and it's just his energy his excitement his creativity you know and as a kid you you just kind of i think you're surrounded by this and you're passively absorbing it so yeah very privileged uh, that you know three very inspirational strong independent role models in some sense wow <laughs> what an amazing start kirti really uh, this is this is fascinating so you talk about passion and you talk about you know finding that love for that passion how did that happen to you uh, how did wildlife happen to you how did you grow into what you are doing for such a long time i mean a lot of us get bored doing one you know one thing for a for few years so it, um wildlife wasn't a conscious choice people think it's an obvious choice yes i was extremely lucky because uh when i was a kid my you know dad started studying tigers and tracking them and then uh you know working in all these amazing parks in india and of course i spent a lot of my holidays with him any uh, spare time i had i would tag along with him and so i grew up spending a lot of time outdoors in nature and just sheer joy of sitting for hours together watching animals but consciously um i didn't really want to get into wildlife i i wanted to be a scientist and wanted to be called dr karant like my parents someday uh, but wasn't particularly uh, focused on wildlife i ended up going to the us for my undergrad and um while i was doing my uh, studying at the university of florida i got broadly in, uh, interested in environmental science and geography did some research uh, which brought me into the environment space and then for my masters at yale actually is when i fully got interested in conservation because when it came time to design a, designing a masters thesis project i actually ended up uh, coming back to india and working in badra wildlife sanctuary and you know that was truly the turning point where i said you know f- formally that i want to do this uh for the rest of my life <laughs> wow a lot of us uh, kriti you know when when we get exposed to something and then then there is this tipping point that that push pushes us you know that that makes us believe in doing something so you you talking about badra i i have traveled around there amazing place what in particular made you believe that you should be doing this and and how so i'm i'm not a you know traditional sort of wildlife biologist in the sense that i have never been obsessed with one species um i have you know for me it's the larger uh, sense of you know can we protect nature as a whole and and really solving the human side of it because for me uh to really succeed in conservation you need to solve human problems you need to improve the condition and lives of people who live around nature and that's kind of the lens that i focus all of my work now so my research has been very focused on you know understanding human wildlife conflict understanding land use change impacts of infrastructure in, uh, uh, on on wildlife and also solutions uh, figuring out you know can you look at tourism and other economic opportunities to better people's life can you look at agroforestry can you look at wildlife friendly practices can you look at uh, you know conservation education can you look at conflict mitigation so i've come at it from a very applied lens so i'm not a mm-hmm. pure biologist in that sense but i think this 
juxtaposition of having to look at biology, economics, geography, social sciences is what keeps my brain excited because it's truly interdisciplinary, you know. And then ultimately, you know, 10 years, the first, I've done this for 23 years now. The first 10 years was very much focused on being a good scientist and doing, you know, innovative research and publishing in the best uh, journals. But I would say in the, the next last third, 12, 13 years, the emphasis has certainly changed on let's do good science to identify the problem. But let's not walk away after we've identified the problem. Let's see, are there solutions that can, that we can come up with? And the conservation programs we have today, while Shale, while Seve, while Surakshe, are all of that. And I'm so proud of those programs because they have tangible impact on the ground. Yeah, this, this is very well explained, Kriti. In, in fact, this intersection that you described, uh, society, economy, and wildlife, uh, that that is that is very. I mean, it sounds very impactful. Now, you know where where we sit in in Bangalore. A lot of time is spent on humans versus machine kind of a debate. But uh, what you are talking about is 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 the wild and and humans, and 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 that's where the societies and everything else comes in. So the first ten years as a scientist, what were some of the things you learned? And then we can shift to the next 12, 13 that you talked about. I think the first 10 years was just the pure joy of doing science, right? So I did a, uh, I did a research project that looked at mammal extinctions across India. So this was actually deep diving into history, pulling up, uh, you know, hunting records of the British and Indian Maharajas uh, and natural history observations of many, uh, uh, of many people who had documented where they'd either seen or shot animals uh, post the you know 1820s, 1830s, all the way to the 1970s, and then talking to wildlife biologists uh, to understand if these species were still around in the same places. This became my PhD the, uh, dissertation at Duke University, and looking at sort of megafauna collapse, how that in a you know just short span of 150 years, how you know, we had wiped out many of the large mammals and they were restricted to a few protected areas or areas where mm -hmm. human, you know, peoples are um, tolerant of wildlife. And so that was an extraordinary uh, adventure in some sense. Uh, did another research project where we looked at wildlife tourism, how it's growing, um, does it benefit locals? Does, uh, and, and India's got a booming middle class today. Many people go to wildlife areas as as uh, holiday destinations. Little do they realize that most of the funding today doesn't go back to either local communities or the parks themselves. Most of it is sort of captured by private mm -hmm. uh, players. And so how can we build more community models of tourism, better ways, sustainable tourism, so that, you know, 60 jeeps are not descending on one lone tiger and so, so a variety of projects like that, and I think uh, the deepest one has obviously been human wildlife conflict. We've done research in you know three thousand villages across India, asking people about human wildlife conflict, which led to the understanding that uh, India is a high conflict country. We have you know eighty to hundred thousand incidents of crop loss, property damage, human injury, human death, and livestock predation. For which are reported to the government and for which compensation is paid. And then looking at 
you know all the things people are trying fencing ditches uh, you know beehives saris is there are there other is does any of this work and how what do you do to prevent human wildlife conflict so all of these i think are you know right in that juxtaposition of either uh, uh identifying threats and then potential opportunities to build some kind of balance uh, between people and wildlife so but what works and and what doesn't work uh, especially on the community side uh, and the way you're talking about you know kind of coexistence so that it makes sense for everyone both the wildlife and the local uh, communities so what works what are the biggest things you have learned when it comes to making it work so the reality is that compared to a lot of other countries in the world india just has 5% of its land set aside for wildlife you can compare this to uh, you know china which is now at more than 20% uh, small countries like nepal or bhutan which have 30% set aside so it's extraordinary that we've managed to hold on to all of these amazing species despite so little lands formally protecting them but a lot of my colleagues and i who've worked in different parts of india have established that in many places wildlife also live amidst people leopards have adapted to live amidst people you do see herds of elephants that are nowhere close to any parks today right and so the real real challenge is you know most of us who live in cities kind of romanticize living with these large animals uh we don't face conflict because of them we may go in as tourists take a few pictures and post it on instagram but the reality is when you're being raided you know 30 to 50 times a year by an elephant or you own two cows and one of your cows is killed then you can't plow your fields mm-hmm. and so we really need to figure out solutions for the people who live in that first 5 to 10 to 20 kilometers next to these parks right because if we want mm-hmm. wildlife uh, to sustain and survive it's just depending on the parks is not going to be enough it's also looking at how do you sustain these populations that live amidst very high densities of people you never see this you don't see this anywhere else in the world so in some sense my firm belief is if you can create solutions that work in india a lot of them uh, will be applicable to other parts of the world i agree with you what are some of those playbooks that that you believe kind of be applied you know elsewhere in that sense So there are I mean three conservation programs that uh, Center for Wildlife Studies now has really implemented and scaled in some sense. Uh I'll start with Wild Shale which is our conservation education program uh which you know works with goes to uh, rural village village schools and you know we kind of go into every classroom spend four sessions with them getting them excited about wildlife about nature understanding our connection to nature and also um how do we um you know get them to understand why conflict happens and how to cope with conflict the program before the pandemic was an enormous success we went to over 400 schools and interacted with more than 20000 children and we mm-hmm. also did you know being scientists we also measured did the program have any impact and we found that it had increased interest increased knowledge and also increased empathy and fundamentally indian children were already more empathetic and so that is the wild shale program and post the pandemic i'm hoping we can really scale it to many many more parks and you know many many more schools across india 
the mm-hmm. second program while save is about really mitigating conflict and you know rebuilding people's lives so we are very fortunate that the indian government has actually set up a compensation system in place and money for compensation to be given to people if they have losses uh what we found was the system wasn't working too well there were delays there was lack of transparency and so for two parks uh, bandipur and nagarhole in karnataka for five and a half years now we have serviced you know 600 villages a staff of six people and they go in and they a toll free number people can call into if you have a conflict incident we arrive on the scene help you build the documentation and help make sure the claim doesn't uh, get rejected so far we've processed about 18000 claims and this is something where you know wherever people live next to lions la- tigers leopards elephants you're going to see this conflict because large mammals do move mm-hmm. and run into people and so i mean that is one end of the toolbox we're also looking at how do you uh, not just solve once the problem has happened um there are very few mitigation ma- measures that work so we can we set up early warning systems so that people don't come in harm's way these are things we're exploring right now and i think most recently is our um, public health and safety program which we called wild surakshay and last year as the pandemic was breaking in india uh, we were about to launch surakshay it was going to focus on human wildlife conflict what are the large animals mm-hmm. you run into Uh, you know if you see a bear do this don't do this if you get injured by an elephant do this don't do this and basic first aid but as the pandemic uh, started to hit india we dug deeper and found that there are other than covid-19 there are five other common zoonotics in the western ghats where we work and uh, people don't know much about how the what the transmission mm-hmm. pathways are how to stay safe so we added a mm-hmm. zoonotic disease component and starting in september my team was out there um out conducting these workshops uh, that reached more than 4000 frontline public health workers asha workers doctors forest department staff community organizations really getting them wow. to understand both conflict and zoonotics and how do you you know how do you uh, solve them and and stay safe and thanks to that effort actually you know this year when the second wave hit india and we started to see the devastation in the cities not just me all my colleagues at cws everybody's very concerned about what we can do but as a conservation organization our focus is very much wildlife and wild places and so there's a sense of you know we're just watching this happen and what can we do literally a week ago we all got together and and decided we would uh, use our field bases our staff our resources to extend wild suraksha to actually supporting local primary health centers and wow. so in a span of a week we've contacted more than 200 phcs in karnataka and goa we've figured out uh, what their staffing is what their uh, medical supplies are needed what resources are needed and as we are speaking this week the first 12 uh, phcs will receive supplies from my team and this i never thought possible that in one week uh while all of us are locked up in our homes that a team can work together we had the staff in uh, who are sitting in different parts of karnataka and goa is just you know raising the funding and getting the vendors to get the materials and then you know figuring out what is needed and i think this rural india uh 
wave is going to be pretty severe and we in urban areas kind of just kind of tend to move on once the problem is solved for us and i'm very very proud that if we hadn't done our conservation programs we wouldn't be in a place today to help people health is not our mandate but i'm really excited and we're all working 12 14 hour days because you can see things moving and you can see tangible ways that even a you know mid-sized ngo like us can have impact today wow this is this is so amazing you know in, in the middle of a crisis a pandemic uh, and what an important pivot i mean amazing really amazing now uh, you know there's something else i would really wanted to learn uh, from your experience and and that's about your past 10 12 years working with the communities uh, a lot of time people take up a mission and and they believe that they can go and change the world uh, and uh, there are lots of challenges especially when it comes to convincing the communities about uh, you know gaining their trust in in that sense right so in your experience what are some of the lessons when it comes to gaining that trust what what goes inside it how do you make people believe that you are on their side so let me give you an example with the wild save program um, when we first launched that toll free number we went and circulated pamphlets in all in all the different villages in the phcs in the bus stand everywhere we didn't know if people were actually going to pick up the phone and call a toll free number but they did and when we got when we reached the first thousand phone calls that we had responded to i realized that this is something that's going to work till then there was also always skepticism about you know if if you know will if they will they call and i think for us what's happened is some people have called us once some people have called us 50 times in five and a half years right and we have gone every single time and that is what builds faith um sometimes we're not able to help for example karnataka doesn't have payments for pig incidents but we still go there and we help there. you see if we can help in some other way and that consistency is i think utmost importance and this is a challenge for that most ngos face right because donors come donors leave something is fashionable for one year three years and then it stops being fashionable but when you are embedded in these communities and you're there for the long term um you have to stay no matter what right once you engage you can't pull out similarly you know we were doing wild chale in some villages and uh, uh the kids were obviously excited and you know we would tell them if you have a conflict incident we can help this is what you need to do and you know we started getting calls from villages where nobody else had ever called us the adults didn't call us but the kids made their parents call us and for me it's these little things that show you how closely connected all of this is and uh, that's what brings happiness yeah it, it is i mean what an amazing thing you said about uh, communities you know and once you embed yourself you, then 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 it is such a deep and long commitment it, that takes care of of lot of problems actually if if you look back at at your career as a scientist and then as someone who's been working across these communities for someone who wants to start fresh in in this field what would be some of the life lessons you can share i think one is um, you know if you want to be a scientist there's no escaping 
you know you have to get some kind of formal training and education at least up to a masters but if you don't want to be a scientist i know a lot of remarkable conservationists you don't need these degrees you can have impact starting today right and it's really figuring out what career path you want and how you're going to get there but i think truly uh when you're younger being open uh to working with different kinds of people different kinds of contexts uh particularly i find that a lot of urban kids today you know the smallest thing uh they're not able to handle they're not able to handle stressful situations they're not ha- able to handle pressure and you know if you go live in a rural community for a while then you truly start to appreciate what your life how lucky you are and how privileged you are and how how much more you can do given your background right and i, I think getting making young people more resi- resilient is something uh, i hope we can do Yeah, that that's again very well said i i think for anyone listening to this and looking for you know career or life in this field it is very valuable kriti other thing i wanted to ask you and you know i know it's it's become cliche to talk about women in this field women in that field and i personally try and away you know stay away from cliche part of the question but when i look at your journey you know i feel like there is there is something you you can talk about especially for uh, you know women and science that intersection because we 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 don't see enough uh, and i know there are lots of talented uh, people who happen to be women and who should be in this field but somehow we lose them how do you assess that so i think the good thing is you know my my parents generation if you particularly look at wildlife it was extremely male male dominated i'd say over 95% of the people are male if you look at my generation you know it's almost 50-50 i would say um i do think uh i'm still shocked actually uh, i a lot of my friends who are scientists both in india and america the barriers they face uh how much m- more they have to struggle to have their cred- credibility established and um, i don't see these problems going away easily and uh, you know a lot of people getting disheartened and you know by the time they're in their mid 30s giving up because it's just too difficult and and some of this actually comes down to you know whether you want children or you don't want children whether you have a supportive spouse and family or not and success often comes down to that rather than what the person is about and uh, mm-hmm. i think truly you know allowing uh workspaces that that are flexible and not these rigid ti- timelines that by this age this has to be done by this age something else has to be done because i mean if if you're passionate about something you're going to spend 40 to 50 years of your life hopefully doing it so why does that mean everything has to be accomplished in the first 10 to 15 years right there is a much longer runway and and kind of saying that people are productive at 40 at 50 at 60 it all doesn't have to happen in your 20s and 30s i think there's a lot of value to that in the things that you do kriti how do you tackle that i mean in in everything that you do you you have couple of decades uh, on this more than that right so do, how do you tackle that problem or have you gone about it so i've been very lucky i've mentored more than 200 uh young scientists both male and, male and female in india and from other countries 
And I would say the ratio of people I've mentored is uh, pretty even. If you look at the research team today at CWS, there are actually more women on the research team than men. And so when we're hiring for positions, I really look at the potential of the person rather than uh, whether they're, you know, either overcompensate because they're female or undercompensate because they're male. And that's generally worked out because I think just recognizing somebody who's good and giving them an opportunity has just allowed more women um, to to be there. But this challenge of, uh, you know, losing women who could otherwise grow in their you know, ranks because of a lot of societal, mm. cultural issues, right? I mean, and, and, and family is just one of them. Uh, I have heard about this in the IT industry as well, which employs nearly half women, but very few are among the top leaders, right? So is there something else that can be done, especially in the field that you work in, especially in the world of science? No, I think, uh, you know, particularly creating flexibility for women when they choose to have children is a huge part of this, right? Every child that you have, in some sense, uh, may may have like a two to three year slowdown on what you would have done otherwise. And there's very few ways that people actually accommodate this. In some sense, you know, the pressures to, you know, if you're particularly if you're in academia, you know, you're supposed to achieve tenure by a certain age and produce this many number of papers and raised have raised roughly this much money. Uh, and I kind of see that in non-academic situations too, right? So I think it's, can you create flexibility? Can you create workforce that may not ne- necessarily be 40 hours a week, could be less, could, ba- could come back up later? You know, that kind of flexibility will make a huge difference. I think you're right. And, and this is something which can work across the sectors. Uh, and I do hope it happens that way. Uh, yeah. Final uh, question, uh, Kriti. Uh, you, you have had such a distinguished uh, family, you know, parents and, and everyone in the family. Uh, now, you've been at this for a couple of de- decades and more. Um, don't you get bored? Why, why do you do this? And what I'm trying to understand is what what is that you would like to be uh, known for? If we are having a conversation a decade down, what are the things you would like to have achieved? What do you want to be known for? And why why do you do this? I could never be bored. I just have uh, so many things I get to do. I get to be a scientist, which means run a research project, uh, analyze data, publish papers, which make me very happy. Uh, I collaborate with a variety of uh, artists, uh, have collaborated with, with filmmakers to make documentaries and written a children's story book with Raghava KK, an artist. So that keeps the creative side of me alive. Um, being a conservationist, getting out into the field every month before the pandemic, going to see uh, the Chalet program, you know, light up a kid's eyes or talk to a family that we've helped with the uh, Seve. All of these things bring me joy. And I think like the eclectic diversity of my job and I feel happy you know fundraising every time we get a donor and a big grant I'm just as happy right so my sources of happiness are multiple and I think it's never on based on one thing and so all of this there's always ups and downs but between all this there's always some some source of positivity and and uh, so that keeps my mind 
you know, you, you're not forced to do just one thing. There's so many other things that are going on. And um, for me, it's really, you know, I think maybe perhaps in your 20s, you're foolish enough to think that you really change the world in a big way. Uh, now I'm, I think, uh, early 40s. I don't have those notions of I'll change the world in a big way, but I, I know uh, we at CWS, all of us will change the world in a small way, but that small way is what counts. And that I'm deeply proud of. And I hope we can innovate uh, create more impactful programs like Save Shali and Surakshay. How do you create a CW, uh, you know, the organization itself that outlives you? How, how do you, because because you, you picked it up, right? Uh, a kind of a baton and, and now you're running with it. How, how do you find future leaders? How do you make sure it outlives you and many others? I think the key is to you know, give opportunities to many, many people and uh, some some will go the long haul, run the marathon with you. Many will run the short 100-meter sprint, which is fine. And to, you know, uh, to really give opportunities and work with as many different kinds of people and the true gems, I think, will stay. And, and I'm very confident that we will have more and more uh people who can lead and build out programs and, and, and have impact. This is amazing, Kriti. Uh, it, 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 it's such a joy talking to you, listening uh, to all the lessons from your journey. And uh, Godspeed, what can I say? I, I wish uh, things become normal again and you are back uh, in the trenches again. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Pankaj. It was delightful to speak to you.